Welcome to another episode of Ready Teacher One. I'm Adam Mangana. And I'm Ryan McLaughlin. And with us today is Michael Robbins, the co-founder of Learning Pathmakers. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. It's an honor to have you on. Um, why don't you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself and your interest in ed tech, and then maybe we can get into the work of Learning Pathmakers after that. Absolutely. I'm excited to be here. Um, thank you for having me. Um, Absolutely. So for the last um, three decades, I've been working at the intersection of education, technology, and community partnerships. Um, this has ranged from the grassroots level to, um, to you know, the, the top levels of government. Um, during my time um, with the Obama administration, where I served for five years um, with the U.S. Department and the, of Education um, and the, the White House, um, I focused a lot on, um, you know, not just building partnerships um, between schools and communities and families, but, you know, how we can use technology to support that in different ways. Um, and then um, five years ago, uh, when I departed the administration, I, I began a nonprofit called District of Learning. Um, this was launched uh, in partnership with the MacArthur Foundation and local partners here in DC, where we've been using mobile te first technology uh, for learning playlists, uh, digital badges, and online portfolios um, to connect and credential learning uh, everywhere it happens across wow. schools and communities and online spaces. Um, so, you know, we've, we've discovered over the last five years, um, you know, how challenging it is to make remote learning work. Right. Um, and so you can imagine, um, you know, with, with this work, um, you know, as part of our history that when the pandemic set in, um, we immediately saw, you know, both a, a crisis, um, but also an opportunity um, to, to go beyond zoomed out classrooms. Um, what's evolved over the last 11 months, um, you know, and Cecily uh, Darden Adams joining me as co-founder, um, we've recently launched um, as Learning Pathmakers and um, be excited to talk more about that. That's yes. tremendous. You know, I could almost uh, hear many of our listeners nodding their head vigorously when you described uh, remote learning as, as a crisis, right? I mean, um, we're seeing research come out of Stanford just this past week about how Zoom fatigue is um, not just something we're imagining. It's something that, uh, you know, is scientifically verifiable. Um, teachers across the country are exhausted. They're frustrated. Uh, I think parents across the country are exhausted and frustrated. Students across the country are exhausted and frustrated. Tell us a little bit about um, what kind of solutions Learning Pathmakers is proposing for that. So, you know, during this moment, I mean, there's, you know, nobody's happy with their solutions to remote learning. Um, and, and no one's happy with what we're looking at as our pathways back to classrooms either. Um, you know, it's, um, you know, it's something that, you know, there's no easy answers. Um, through learning pathmakers, um, we're taking a different approach. Um, you know that, you know, as people, you know, now more than ever are saying that we need a new vision for education. We need to reimagine re what schools look like. Um, you know, what's missing is what's been missing all along, which is what's the pathway to get there, right? right. We that hasn't changed. You know, we've been saying you know the system needs to change and. I've been at that game and Cecily has for, for three decades. And it, you know, it, it doesn't just change by itself. So we're, we're focusing on a different approach, which is how do we start with the needs and perspectives of students and then what, what each of us can do differently. Uh, and um, by each of us, we're bringing together teachers, 
community partners, community-based educators, parents, students, uh, and technology experts on this, what we're calling our Learning Pathmakers Expedition. In fact, um, we have uh, uh, our last uh, couple sessions this week, I'm wearing my expedition vest and my expedition hat Very nice. uh, here, here in our expedition studio. And so through the Learning Pathmakers Expedition, we're both working with people to co-create better solutions to the crisis now, but also looking at how we can use technology, not just as a learning tool, but how do advanced technologies, um, and we can get into that, how can advanced technologies really change the way that we, um, we support learning? How can it change the way that we act as learners? Um, things around data science, blockchain, um, artificial intelligence, augmented virtual reality, but coming at this not from the technology side, coming at it from the human side first. Right, right. I'm reminded of the uh, the Rahm Emanuel quote, uh, never let a crisis go to waste, right? And I, I think what you're saying, and, and we fully agree here, um, is that it's not as though there weren't major challenges to address before the pandemic even started, right? Um, we already knew that education in this country had to change. We already knew that our students' needs weren't being met. And so it sounds like you guys are looking at this pandemic as, as just another way to encourage people to engage in a conversation that really needed to be had before any of us had ever heard the word COVID-19, right? Yeah, you know, and, and also, I mean, people have a level of awareness that they didn't have before, right? P sure. Parents have an understanding of what their children's learning lives are like that they haven't had. Um, we did, in fact, see school change overnight. So we know change can happen. Um, we know that, you know, even if someone says we need to return to normal, there's no such thing as normal, right? right? Normal isn't there anymore. The only direction to go is forward. And so where do we go forward? Yeah. So for us, you know, if you've seen, you know, I love, of course, the, uh, the name of, of your podcast, <laughs> um, you, you look at depictions of our future in movies like Ready Player One. And um, Minority Report or Blade Runner, all of these, they are universally more dystopian than what we're facing in digital sure. society right now. I am, you know, speaking to you four miles from the U.S. Capitol building. We see what has happened with our digital commons and the way that it's pulling us apart. As we seek for things that, in fact, can bring us together, you know, we, we've been anchoring around this idea of our learning DNA. And our learning DNA is something that we all do, is we all learn, we all educate, we all support each other in learning. And so how do we use that as an anchor as we move into society in AR, VR, we'll just call it XR here, extended reality, right? Sure. As we move into XR society, how can we make some decisions now and help bring people along a pathway that leads to a future that looks really differently. Um, we are anchoring a, a comprehensive um, team and plan and strategy around the creation of a Pokemon Go for learning, starting, starting here in Washington, DC. Um, it brings together data science, it brings together artificial intelligence, um, embedding blockchain technology. I could go on the tech stuff for days. Sure. But we know, and we've seen with education during the crisis, we saw it during one-to-one -one rollouts in 2012, 2013, big data systems like in bloom 
you know, collapsing on their own gravitational pull, that technology isn't enough. That we have to bring people to this in a different way. Right. And so here anchoring all this technology that's possible, even possible now, but is so far in front of where people are during this crisis, bringing people to this technology by focusing on what they need now, which is building supportive relationships and, and working in, in better and stronger ways together, and then bring this technology together around this Pokemon Go for learning. Let me ask you this, uh, Michael. What, what, so if someone says to you, hey, look, I love that idea. I actually would like to start uh, a school completely in virtual reality uh, to take the theme of our, our show. What advice would you give someone who said, hey, look, Zoom fatigue is real. We're going to just throw these headsets on and we're going to try to create community three-dimensionally in virtual reality. Um, I've been calling that Zoom 3D. <laughs> um, that um, that you can do that. And we see people who have virtual reality solutions. It's interestingly, of all the things that are possible to do with VR, what we're seeing is VR replications of in-person standard delivered classrooms. Right. Right? That, that's what people are familiar with. And in fact, VR can be a lot more. Um, I'm actually much more interested in augmented reality. And let me tell you why. VR transports us to another world. And in fact, you know, I know from my experiences, you know, with, with my, my, my Oculus Quest in a lot of different environments, that it can in fact be disassociative. Sure. Right? Ready Player One imagines, you know, these multiple worlds that you live on. We already live on multiple worlds right now, right? Right. Right? Do we want QAnon Planet? Are you going to go to school in QAnon Planet? Right? So, so what I think is actually the bigger opportunity is to focus on AR because it has the power to connect us to our physical environment, to proximity networks, to strengthen our ties that have been, you know, tearing even further apart during the isolations of pandemic but ultimately to connect people to people in different ways. Say more about that. So, you know, imagine, you know, you're walking down the street and particularly for our, you know, black and brown students and, and students from, you know, families with low economic wealth, you know, you see, um, you see a sign or you see a building or a window. There might be some, um, you know, something there that, you know, shows that it's a, a museum or a learning experience. Um, you know, it might even say on the sign that you're welcome. But we know too often that, you know, our spaces are, um, are segregated um, and that these are not opportunities that are actually open, right? I, I look at the Kennedy Center here in Washington, D.C. Now, the Kennedy Center has been doing some amazing work to work on this with their new REACH Center. This is a public space, right? You know, we go, we celebrate, there's free events, all these things. But for a teen east of the river, that's not, that doesn't seem like a space that they're welcome in, right? That's not, that's not an opportunity, it's not a network for them. And so for us, being able to use augmented reality to bridge that gap in a way is just one example of how we see this working. It, you know, it's really interesting, Michael. Um, it, it seems to me that there's some of the timeless arguments like 
the W.B. Du Bois argument and the, and the Booker T. Washington argument where th that's going to emerge in this new technical space where you're going to have some folks say, hey, let's figure out how those those illumined seers that have access to technology can shape the experience for example, these black and brown children. And then there'll be others, I probably fall in this camp, who'll say, hey, you know what we need to do? We need to take these black and brown students and teach them unity and have them own the means of production to create these augmented reality experiences so that they can participate um, from an ownership position, not from a consumer 100%. position. I'm curious what your thoughts are around you know, the, the um, exposure of actually developing an Unreal Engine or, um, you know, being able to mint an NFT or being able to write in Solidity or Haskell or, um, you know, those kinds of, of emerging skill sets that we're going to need to have a more of an ownership position rather than just a consumption position. Uh, yeah, I mean, the internet today treats all of us, particularly black and brown kids as um, spectators and consumers and products and products yeah um, or um, you know oil wells with our personal data right right and we have an opportunity as we move into the spatial web this is an opportunity for a reset on the OS right and as we go into XR society this is a chance to do things differently. So, you know, what you're talking about is what we're leading with is, in fact, not creating this for young people, but engaging them as leaders and creators in this Pokemon Go for learning and focusing specifically um, on an area in downtown DC, which is rich with multicultural resources. Fabulous. Um, we have the Maryland Augmented and Virtual Reality Innovation Center here, Maverick. Um, you know, we have, you know, Technology companies are represented in, in greater DC in large numbers. Um, I think about my time um, leading operations for the first robotics competitions and um, how we could take this model of first, um, where we're actually, instead of building robots, we're building an environment, um, a learning environment. Um, that's not a game that somebody else designed that you play and build a robot to do that, but something that you design that you actually use. And it starts with um, the airport cloud, right? So right now we have, you know, companies jockeying to define the AR map. Um, history is full of, you know, examples where you were the victor because you had the maps. Right. And you got to create the new maps because you were the victor. Um, we see, you know, we've seen that with, um, you know, modern day conquerors and, um, you know, corporations and um, politicians, right? Control of the map, whether it's redistricting or the Google map, this is what it allows you to control and to sell. OpenAR gives us a chance to do this differently, to have this be a distributed ecosystem. And so part of this, you know, in addition to the kinds of things that you're talking about there with teaching, um, you know, uh, VR design, VR AR design, um, you know, uh, computational 
computing, optics, um, unity. Um, there's also an opportunity to look at like, what's the, what are the data models under this, right? So how do we build data that's around technologies like solid? How do we build ethical AI around things like edge computing? So that, you know, this doesn't look like what we have now where we have corporate interests that own our digital public square. It's actually owned by the people that live there and create it. One of the just last thing, I'll take a break here. I know I've been talking for a while, but no, one no, of the okay. unique things that we're dealing with here in DC is um, we can't use drones to map. Sure. Um, we also um, have um, significant requirements on historic preservation. And so, you know, part of this is how do we actually engage teens and young adults in creating the map? Getting out with, you know, scan with mobile devices to scan and create the point cloud um, and then creating experiences on top of that that they own. So really going deep, deep on tech and ownership. That's tremendous. Michael, one of the things that Adam and I discussed before the start of our, our second season here was uh, the need for us to just talk more about blockchain. And, you know, part of that was uh, certainly that blockchain has, you know, recently had a tremendous resurgence in the news. People have been focused on uh, Bitcoin and its fluctuations in the market and all that. But um, really, I think our conversation centered around the very thing we're talking about, this idea of um, decentralizing power and this idea of using tech as a, a means for encouraging greater societal equity and a greater um, equity and learning outcomes in education. So um, you mentioned blockchain previously um, as being part of Learning Pathmakers solution to all of this. I, I would love to just hear you comment more on that and how does that particular type of technology fit into where you see things headed? Absolutely. So our work, we're leading with a set of values. Um, those are, um, you can see those under our vision section on learningpathmakers.org. Um, where you'll also see that what we are envisioning is what we're calling a tabled ecosystem. And that's an acronym, T-A-B-L-E-D. Um, and in fact, it's a tabled approach to both our technology, how we build our organization, um, and the learning ecoverse itself. If you imagine the analogy, you know, it's cross-cultural over the years of stone soup, where sure. people, you know, bring different pieces of this. The challenge with stone soup is like everyone, you know, probably took that same thing that you send to the, you know, the church food drive or the school food drive, right? It's that, you know, the, the can of whatever you have in the back corner. There's really not a recipe. Everything kind of, you know, tastes like goulash. Yeah. Imagine if instead you had the best ingredients, you had top-notch chefs, and a recipe you put this together in a way that, um, you know, not only pulled together everybody's best resources but then everyone had a seat at the table yeah to the take of of what we've created so tabled stands for transparent agile blended lean equitable and distributed wow um you know there's certainly we could go in and spend a whole t um podcast just talking about each piece of this but just really quickly you know, transparency for us is a core value. It's how do we build things, um, you know, with trust. Right. Um, so that we, you know, understand that someone's not hoarding their unfair share of the value. Right. Um, and this includes, you know, developing um, 
you know, transparent accounting systems, transparent project management implementation systems, um, transparent and explainable artificial intelligence algorithms, right? So that people know there's no black box. Um, Agile, you know, comes from um, Agile methodology, really looking at, you know, how we iterate on this and, and capitalize on opportunities, not just from a management philosophy perspective, but from a co-creation perspective. Like this is the, it's how do we be responsive to everyone co-creating and participating in that decision-making process. For us, Blended is looking at um, how we blend both social and financial value and how we blend um, both, you know, experience in multiple realities from in real life to XR. I want to come back to that because that also starts to get to the power of blockchain. And in addition to that, the power of distributed applications. Certainly. Lean, you know, is pretty self-explanatory. We're not going to build up big organization. Equity is a, um, is a foremost approach. And in fact, we take it further in our language and we talk about justice and Right. I can talk more about digital justice too. Um, and then distributed, right? How do, we, how do we use distributed technology to distribute power? Um, this for us starts with data ownership. This issue of, of what Jerome Lanier and others called data dignity. Interesting. This, right, this idea that we should all own our personal data independent of any system or platform. And so, Looking at um, solid technology is an anchor for doing this. Um, working with some partners on, um, you know, content authenticity and ownership and licensing, on the establishment of digital identity in ways that we haven't been able to establish before. Right now, we don't exist on the internet. Right, we're just session cookies and logins. Sure. Um, We'll be sharing soon, um, you know, exciting um, some work with one of our, our partners. Um, I'd say work with, they've done this. We're just excited to use it. Um, actually establishing a mechanism for digital identity on the internet, um, independent of any platform or system or application. Wow. Um, that is built to, you know, withstand the hacking of quantum computing. Um, wow. So, so then we get to this, you know, what you talked about with blockchain and, you know, distributed ledger technology. And, you know, right now our education systems are the place where we collect the most information on people, the earliest in their lives that they don't have access to, they don't know exists. If they right. did, they usually can't understand it or use it to live their learning lives. Right. Right. So our approach, and this is part of what gets back to our learning pathmakers expedition is, you know, at a time when we have people sounding the alarm on data privacy and security, it's become a lot like global climate change. Yeah. A really big problem that's really scary. And people are like, there's nothing I can do about it. These right. out data labels that Apple has, right, on what's being collected, these are like the calorie counts on the McDonald's menu. Yeah. You're already in there. You're going to click on the terms of service and you're going to shove your face with whatever digital craving they're offering you, right? Right. So what we need is actually not just a negative argument about data privacy and security. We need to show people a reason to own their data. Sure. We own our health data. We own our financial data. 
we don't own our learning data. Mm. Blockchain technology now allows us a method to do that. We're seeing it happen in healthcare, right? We're seeing it happen in fintech. And so part of what we're doing with learning pathmakers is actually creating this data ownership and a learning accounting system to go along with it that's independent of anything else. Now, as you know, being able to link that to the blockchain provides you know, new opportunities. Um, we can, in fact, own things without it existing in someone else's database, right? It, it exists on, on these distributed ledgers. The real power and potential then becomes when we start to look at distributed applications, dApps. And, um, you know, I could talk tech on this for, for days, but, you know, we see dApps being used for, um, for these models of, you know, customer to business to customer, B to, C to B to C, where B controls the transaction and skims value, right? This yeah. is a dominant model for commerce, Uber, for sure. Airbnb, the all these things, right? Yeah. So what we're seeing now, though, is, you know, and I use this analogy of Cash App or Venmo. And if you ask people, okay, so you send something to someone via Venmo, um, you know, where's the bank? They're like, well, it comes from my bank. Like, no, no, where's the bank in the middle of that transaction? They're like, uh, right. I don't know. Well, Venmo's answer to this is look at this dancing hippo emoji, right? But what we know is this is blockchain and distributed application technology. If we start to think about this as ways, in fact, to, and you talk about decentralize, I use the word decolonize. Yeah. How do we use this to, in fact, decolonize value? Excellent. Across a lot of different things. And instead of C to B to C models where B controls this, we have P to P models where B adds value. Excellent. Right? That is a different model for not just financial interaction, but if we think about social flows the same way that we think about financial flows and we think about smart contracts and the ability for us to collaborate in different ways using technology in ways that is equitable and distributed, the possibilities that opens up for us is huge. We can start with this in our learning ecosystems, but as I you know, see the wheels turning here, this extends to a lot of different things, right? right? It extends to business, it extends to philanthropy, right? Right. And I look at you know the the GameStop trading, you know, <laughs> debacle, kerfuffle, whatever. Um, and there's a lot of tragedy in it, but what we've sure. seen is you know the ability of crowdfunding. Right. To, to change things at scale. The ability of us to mobilize with technology, incredible peer-to-peer -peer networks. Right. Imagine so, if now we're using that to build our learning ecosystem. So is the colonizer in the, in the school, in the traditional school sense, one is those who are trying to take people's data unwittingly, but is it also some of the um, monopolies that the, the traditional public schools have been able to establish? And now teachers can be empowered to go and work and work virtually whenever they want to work. And so is there an empowerment of the supply side of that equation that teachers won't need the institutions that they've needed for the last you know, 400 years? Not in the way you're exactly, they won't need them in the way that they have. Um, 
And we start to also look at um, decentralizing learning outside of schools. Because as we know, learning happens all the time and everywhere, and we can credential it all the time and anywhere. A student, for a student, school's just one node on a much broader network of learning. With distributed technology, we can make that actually a reality. I would go back though on the decolonization piece and say that it's more than about our current power structures and systems that in fact, we have a school system that was designed to support colonization. Absolutely. To feed the needs of the industrial revolution. And in fact, to preserve social situ um, separation. It's embedded in the model. Absolutely. Right? And then even on our best days, when we put our design thinking hats on and our wraparound schools things and our um, you know, community schools approaches, we say, okay, what are all the things that we can do to customize learning experience to help the student meet the goals that we set for them. Sure. I love that you- What's missing from that, right? Absolutely, absolutely. I love that you use the word decolonize. Uh, a major focus of mine professionally, the, the, the school year has been um, centered around critical pedagogy of place, which is a particular branch of critical pedagogy that focuses on decolonizing spaces, right? And so a lot of great work has been done with um, land in Canada that has traditionally belonged to First Nations, but that's been colonized. And how do we teach students to decolonize that land, right? And what I love about what you're talking about is it sounds like you are about the work of decolonizing both physical space and virtual space. Um, and as I've been sitting here thinking about your um, your Pokemon Go for learning, as you described it in DC, I thought to myself, well, he that is going to be a tremendous asset for decolonizing the physical space of DC, which very much needs to happen, but also decolonizing the virtual spaces that are being created around these experiences for students. And I, I love all of that. Um, we are running up against a, a time limit a little bit here, but uh, Michael, we traditionally end the podcast with a segment that we like to call the Furious Five. Uh -huh. It's just going to be five rapid fire questions that don't necessarily have anything to do with what we've talked about here today. They're more just fun, get to know you questions, uh, a little bit more lighthearted for the most part than our, our typical questions. We encourage super rapid fire answers. Um, we're going to start off here and I'm going to change it a little bit because you and I had uh, a, a brief conversation about being from the South. And so I'm gonna change my first question ever so slightly from what it normally is. I'm gonna ask, what is your favorite type of Southern food or what's your favorite Southern dish? Um, gosh, that's a tough one. Uh, let's say crawfish. Nice. Crawfish, I love it. I I'll, love I'll, it. Give you, I'll give you that one. Nice. Second question, what is the best TV show or movie that you've watched recently? Um, one Night in Miami. Okay, great, great. What is uh, the best book that you've ever read? Um, next to the Bible, um, Thomas Mann's The Magic Mountain. Wow, okay. Nice. Interesting, very interesting. Who is a, a thought leader that our listeners should stop what they are doing right now and go follow on social media? On social media? Um, or we can right. up and say, buy a book from or, or whatever the case may be. Yeah, um, gosh. You know, I, I think really looking at uh, Jerome Lanier's work right now, 
Um, and I, I hesitated because he's not on social media. Sure. Which, you know, is, is, is part of his work, right? This understanding this issue of data dignity and data ownership is a building block for everything else. Love it. Excellent. Love it. Last question, uh, we like to call the contrarian question, and it's really Adam's question, so I always let him ask it. Michael, what do you know about what the future of school will look like that your colleagues might disagree with you on? Um, the future is here. It's just not widely distributed. Mm. Say more. Um, our job, you know, these technologies are among us right now. The possibilities are here. Um, they're, you know, accessible by people of power and privilege. Our job is to distribute that power in a way that puts the powerless first. Um, and in particular, um, black and brown students, students from low-income families, um, and just students in general. Um, we need to give power to students in ways that we, um, we've refused to. Amen. That's a tremendous answer. Amen. You Thank have you so been much for being on the podcast today, Michael. It has been such incredible. a pleasure to speak with you. Um, Thanks. If our listeners want to reach out to you and talk to you more, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Yeah. So um, through our website, learningpathmakers.org, um, you know, it, there's our contact information is on there um, and a lot more about what we're talking about. Um, I also, um, I live on LinkedIn, um, as you guys know, which my, um, my teen son refers to as Facebook, but for even older people. <laughs> wow. I like that. He's not wrong. He's not wrong. He's not wrong. You've given He's us our right. tagline for the show too. Ready Teacher One, decolonizing education since 2020. I like that's there it. That's it. Well, Michael, thank you so much. Um, I'm Ryan McLaughlin. My co-host is Adam Mangana. Thank you all for listening today. And please feel free to follow our new Twitter handle at ready underscore teacher. Thank you all so much. And we look forward to chatting with you soon.